0: it up where we left off last time, the final curtain call of a bright particular star, the story of George MacDonald's daughter, Lilia, who was an actress, which marked the halfway point on a wander through my favorite tunes from favorite Pacific theater shows. 5 p.m. on January 27th, 2022 marked the one-year anniversary of my Warren Schmidt Day. When I watched the second hand tick toward the end of my 37 years as the Artistic Director of Pacific Theatre. Sometimes also the Managing Director of Pacific Theatre. Often the barely managing director of Pacific Theatre. But somehow we managed to steer the good ship Pacific Theatre through troubled waters and calm seas alike me and my hearty crew of deckmates and deckhands, until we caught sight ashore and made landfall on the 13,390th day of the journey, guided our P.T. boat up to the dock and piped this old salt ashore on the uncharted desert isle where I was to while away the rest of me days, swaying in hammocks slung between palm trees, drinking from coconuts, lulled by tropic breezes, soothed by the gentle sounds of the surf.
1: Right back and you'll hear a tale tale of a fateful trip that started from this tropic port aboard this tiny ship The maid was a mighty sailing man, the skipper brave and sure Five passengers set sail that day for a three hour tour A three hour tour The ships are ground.
0: end up as the skipper i i wanted to be the professor sharing the screen and the credits with marianne who was definitely the cutest i mean who even liked the movie star all fake looking like some floozy hanging out in a las vegas bar with like a frank sinatra impersonator no marianne all the way And so what if we didn't get mentioned in the theme song sometimes, with Gilligan and the Skipper 2, the millionaire, and his wife, the movie star, and the rest? What is that about? But we didn't care. We were just happy to be together, unnoticed, cheerfully gathering coconuts and driftwood for my latest invention that would make life better for the rest of the fearless crew, or, or get us off the island, maybe we'd probably be walking along the beach just talking together about our Batman comics or or who was better, Sergeant Rock or Sergeant Fury. We both agreed Sergeant Rock, (laughs) obviously. I mean, we were DC all the way. Sergeant Fury just looked too furious. That's no way to fight a war. Not when you're one of the good guys. I mean, sure, it's hard work and everything being a World War II hero, but you don't have to be all mad about it all the time. That's how me and Marianne saw it. mates. But I digress. That's never happened before. Uh, just to be clear, for the record, Pacific Theatre never did produce a stage adaptation of Gilligan's Island. Try as we might. Copyright issues. Speaking of which that was little roger and the Goosebumps with their 1978 single on splash records gilligan's island open bracket stairway closed bracket popularly known as stairway to gilligan's island led zeppelin threatened a copyright infringement lawsuit demanding that all copies be destroyed and the tiny san diego record company withdrew the song determining that their legal resources might be inadequate to contest in court the claims of one of the biggest-selling rock bands in history. In 2004, Robert Plant cited that record as his favorite cover of Stairway to Heaven. Pity you didn't mention that back in 1978, Bob! Soul Food Ghost Light. Always sticking up for the little guy. Anyway, at the end of last show, I promised we'd pick up where we left off, playing tunes that we used in some of my most memorable shows at Pacific Theater. Show tunes, but not that kind of show tunes. No Judy Garland or Barbara Streisand on this pirate radio program. And just so you know, we're going to run a bit over time tonight. I don't want to take up three broadcasts with one theme, right? An hour 20 is too long for you? You got a pause button? Use it. Mercy Wild. My breakthrough at Cal Arts after a bit of a rough start came in Libby Apple's class. The character who emerged when I put on my choice from the sort of neutral masks that were set out for us on the first day turned out to be Eddie a desperately shy and awkward janitor at the elementary school whose grand heroic moment was catching a bee that was spreading panic at Meet the Teachers night. At the end of the thirteen weeks, when Eddie and the other fifteen characters disappeared back into the gym bag where we stored the masks, I felt a real sense of loss. And I guess a sense of waste? It shouldn't end there. So a couple decades later, I invited ten or a dozen actors to immerse themselves in a three-week intensive, half a dozen of whom would stay on for a fourth week to start devising an actual play built around the characters, their stories, their interactions. And that December, Mercy Wilde premiered on the Pacific Theater stage. The title came from my youngest daughter, Katie, who insisted on singing Hark the Herald Angels Sing as our table grace well into July, and we were only too willing just to hear her sing Pizza on Earth and Mercy Wild. Amen to that. Jake was a complicated character, a lonely World War II vet with a drinking Mm -hmm. problem. He hung around a park bench and befriended a little girl who regularly visited the park alone. Those were queasy scenes to experience. Though as it turned out, Jake wasn't who we were afraid he was. He also wasn't who he wished he was. In one scene, we watched him put on his World War II uniform, salute himself in the mirror, and head out to the Remembrance Day ceremony, only to learn that Jake never went to war he never signed up never shipped out it was his brother's uniform jake lived his life in shame he thought he was a coward his brother served overseas at juneau beach i wanted to be a jockey but that didn't work out so i became a bookie Sometime I'm gonna head out and see Marty. That's my brother. My other brother, Harold, he died. Survives World War II, then chokes on the goddamn hot dog and dies. So now it's just me and Marty. Marty, he was a jockey. Don't know what he's doing now. We don't talk. Jake was a sham hero. That is, he was a sham World War II hero. His real heroism unfolded over the course of the play, befriending and looking out for a lonely little girl who took refuge in the park instead of returning home to her shattered family. Besides Lucy, Jake had two other loves in his life. His wife, Marie, who died, and Frank Sinatra.
2: Frankie! <laughs>
0: Fame and fortune, one simple little melody may turn the trick. I know, for you're listening to the tune, that a great deal to do with sending us on our way to fame. And here to bring you a listening thrill is Frank Sinatra to sing the ever-popular Marie. All right, Frank, take it. Marie, oh, Marie, tis
3: true,
1: It is breaking Just break for me. Marie, the girl of my dreams, I want you. I need you to find, have a little faith in me, your heart is la 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 and tears, here, here I go crying as again, as take you me, really darling, take call me. the moon, on a night like in this, in all its splendor, the park. a kiss, oh, the way so I very learned it, darling, I the word spoken as it came from me, will you surrender, oh,
0: jake's theme music for the show and to this day when i hear those early recordings of frank sinatra with the tommy dorsey orchestra i think of jake and our very peculiar little show well 20 years after that show closed jake lives julia Mackey kept developing her crusty world war ii wannabe who evolved into an actual World War II veteran of Juno Beach, though no less crusty. Her play, Jake's Gift, has been seen by thousands and thousands and thousands of people. It's been honored with many awards. Julia has played her one-person show in Normandy, France, as part of commemorations for the 70th, 73rd, and 75th anniversaries of the D-Day invasions that marked the beginning of the end of the Second World War. So Libby, the masks may have gone back into the gym bag, but your legacy lives on. Here's Sherry Plett with her song Yellow Dress that we somehow managed to slip into our 2008 Christmas show Jesus My Boy
4: She wears bright flowers in her hair She dances that twirls She looks his way and catches his stare Blows a kiss and smiles and heads his way Even the shadow of his presence makes her scared Scared that she's falling Falling for him Falling for the way he have to say a word to let her know Even the shadow of her presence makes him scared
3: Scared that he's falling Falling for her
4: Falling for the way she's Falling for
1: the way she looks when she's lost in his eyes
3: Wipe away the fear of falling Falling for the one
0: Thing to do with Christmas, as you may have noticed. I thought it sounded like a good Mary and Joseph love song. But mostly I just wanted to hear Cher and Jer sing the song a bunch of times. Nobody listens to lyrics anyway, right? Spring 2009. And Pacific Theater's second production of You Still Can't. My self-indulgent sequel to You Can't Take It With You. It picked up the original story 60 years later, with another generation of Kirbys and Vanderhoffs still living life to its fullest in an old brownstone somewhere near Columbia University. But don't go looking for it. I pillaged several of my previous plays, and the names and attributes of any number of friends and family members, to populate this stage full of eccentric characters. One of them broadcast a low-power pirate radio station from his attic, a character essentially stolen from my other pirate radio DJ show, The Top 10,000 of All Time, though I changed his name from Ron, oh, wonder where I got that name, to Norman, which was stolen from a music-obsessed list-making friend with his own radio show, and I surrounded Norman with a whole lot more people. In the middle of all that quirk and madness was a middle-of-the-night scene. That's probably my favorite. Norman is sending out a special midnight broadcast, KRBY, radio that's way beyond the norm, to his sister Sky, who's in jail over some trumped-up charges. So he's slipped into her room and raided her record collections to play some of her favorites, including this one. And doesn't this just sound like the middle of the night? Midnight Indigo, from the Duke Ellington score for Anatomy of a Murder on Coronet Records. But not, interestingly enough, the Duke Ellington recording of the Duke Ellington score for Anatomy of a Murder, all indications on the record cover notwithstanding. I found a beat up copy of this album in a Seattle record shop more than 30 years ago. I bought it because it was super cheap and pretty old looking and I dig film noir jazz scores from the 50s. I took it home, I played it, and I loved it. And I didn't realize for years that this was not the Duke Ellington soundtrack recording. Coronet Records was based in San Francisco in the 1940s and was responsible for the first recordings of Dave Brubeck. But it disbanded when it couldn't pay its bills. This album wasn't released on that Coronet Records, but by an even more fly by night outfit that used the label name to release cheap knockoffs of best selling records. You know, Twist and Shout by The Beatles. B-E-E-T-L-E-S, that sort of thing. Eventually, I heard the actual Duke Ellington recordings of the Duke Ellington score to Anatomy of the Murder, and it was much worse. Slick. Precise. Too big band. No grit. No midnight. No murder. And yeah, now that I look closer at the label on the record, I saw on the inside label that the Coronet album I was so addicted to wasn't by the Duke Ellington Orchestra, as the cover suggested. It was by the Bob Friedman Orchestra. Well, I could learn nothing about Bob Friedman or his orchestra for several years until I somehow figured out that Coronet Records had even spelled his name wrong. They had F-R-I-E-D, man. But the real guy was F-R-E-E-D, man. Who had pulled together a pickup band in Boston to record a quick and dirty day rate session for Coronet's shady budget line of cash grab knockoff records? Coronet Records presents music to fit your every mood. This is a coronet recording utilizing tape recorders and microphones, particularly designed to produce records, etc. Note. Additional sound value will be achieved by playing this monophonic record on stereophonic equipment. Coronet Records, the greatest value in hi-fi. Well, I won't argue with that. It was the best buck ninety-nine I ever spent. I'll play more for you from that record another time. Truly, music for the shank of the night. One year after You Still Can't, Sarah Rogers' far-out, socket-to-me version of Godspell found its way to the Pacific Theater stage. You know, I had dreamed of being in that show since I was blown away by the hippie gospel Jesus freak movie version that came out in 1973, about half a year after I became a Jesus people light version of a Christian the fall before. And sure enough, I got to open the show at the top of the stairs on the north side of the theater, sounding my shofar, which I only managed to get a sound out of approximately 43% of the time, and when I didn't, muttering to myself, how do you like me, shofar, then launching the show with that glorious opening number. that isn't me singing. That was Victor Garber. Yeah. Sarah's big idea for the show came out of her research. Sarah does love her research. So do I. Kindred spirits. She realized that the original production of Godspell came out of the sketch comedy and improv clubs of the late 60s. With the landmark Toronto production starring Eugene Levy, Gilda Radner, Dave Thomas, and Martin Short. You might have heard of the show's musical director, a young fellow named Paul Schaefer. Well, the same countercultural spirit that informed that production and sketch comedy clubs in Greenwich Village and Los Angeles and Chicago and Toronto also inspired Rowan and Martin's Laughing. Our musical director had never been on Letterman, but man oh man, did Nelson Boschman ever nail it when he came up with tunes for the band to play between scenes and at the end of acts. Boogaloo Stingers, as band leader Brett Ziegler called them. As much as the flower power set or the groovy costumes, that music said, Laugh in. Nobody's quite sure what tunes the band played. But here's a taste of what I added to my iTunes playlist that June. Songs that at least inspired Nebo's set list. Suki Suki by Grant Green. Or Herbie Hancock's Watermelon Man. The Sidewinder by Lee Morgan. All fine examples of Boogaloo. A hip 60s mashup of Latino and R&B and jazz and funk sounds that most Canadians only ever heard on Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In. One favorite memory of that out-of-sight Godspell, which was no doubt the funnest show I've ever been in, came at the end of Act One. After our full cast dance number to You Are the Light of the World, the band played us off with something that I think was Quincy Jones' Hickey Burr, and I hung back as everybody else headed for the green room, and hidden just off stage there, I kept on dancing to the funky sounds of the Brett Ziegler Boogaloo Band. Exactly like no one was watching. Because no one was. Jalen McFall was in that show with me, and a year later, the two of us did a very different show together. My CalArts buddy, J.P. Allen, who we talked about in Show Tunes Part 1, came up to direct us in my favorite play of his, a down-and-dirty one-act he'd written called The Disappearing. We were the opening act for an apprentice production of another one of J.P.'s plays, The Casino directed by another Godspell alumnus, Phil Miguel. And how's this for a cast? Rob Olgeen, John Voth, Mary Eden. (laughs) The latter two were also Godspell survivors. The set for Shays and My Show, The Disappearing, was a pile of tires, a lot of bottles and beer cans and trash, and a large beat-up cardboard box like for a piece of furniture or something a homeless guy could live inside. A homeless guy like me. Before the audience was let in, I'd take my place under a dirty blanket inside the box. Eventually this next song would play. The lights would fade to black. And as the song ended and we got a bit of light on stage, I would emerge searching through the bottles for one that had at least something left in the bottom never did any song prepare me for an entrance the way this one did
1: my coat when I hit Spokane, bought myself a hard pack of cigarettes in the early morning rain. Lately my hands, they don't feel like mine, my eyes been stung with dust and blind. held you in my arms one time, lost you just the same. Get on my blue jeans I Still don't of this here suitcase for way too long man needs something he can hold on to nine pound Too late. I found myself face down in the ditch. Oozing my hair, blood on my lips. A picture of you holding a picture of me in the pocket of my blue jeans. I still don't know.
0: Montaigne. Jolene. Cocaine flame in my bloodstream. Sold my coat when I hit Spokane. Bought myself a hard pack of cigarettes in the early morning rain. Jolene. I ain't about to go straight. It's too late. I found myself face down in a ditch blues on my hair, blood on my lips, a picture of you holding a picture of me in the pocket of my blue jeans. Damn. I'll tell you all about Ray Lamontaine some other time. The next January, Jason Good directed a show at Pacific Theater that wasn't too far from the world of the disappearing, come to think of it. Powerful production, stunning cast, Alex Ponovich and Lori Triolo in John Patrick Shanley's Danny in the Deep Blue Sea. I wish I could show you the poster, but this is radio and there are limitations. You know, in the movies, they refer to certain perfect songs that get played at certain perfect moments in a show as needle drops. The needle drops into the record groove at precisely the right moment, and we just sit and listen for a while. Well, Jason is a filmmaker, and here is Jason's Needle Drop song for Danny and the Deep Blue Sea.
2: Everybody wants to laugh But nobody wants to cry Everybody wants to go to heaven But nobody wants to die Everybody want to hear the truth But yet everybody wants to tell a lie I say everybody want to hear the truth But still they all want to tell a lie want to go to heaven but nobody wants to die
0: Albert King, talking about everybody wants to laugh, but nobody wants to cry. Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. Ain't that God's own truth? Man, am I proud of the shows we put up in those days. From God's Spell and Refuge of Lies and Playland in 2010. Asher Lev, Jesus Hopped the A-Train, Jake's Gift, Reunion, A Christmas Carol in 2011 then Danny and the Deep Blue Sea, and Doubt, and The Last Days of Judas Iscariot in the first half of 2012. I guess it was worth it. Here's a change of pace. We followed Danny with an utterly different John Patrick Shanley play, Doubt. Erlafe Forsyth, Giovanni Mosibab, Leslie Lewis Sword, and a young Caitlin Williams making her professional Pacific Theater debut as the impressionable Sister James. Elegant, sparse, fierce, on a hardwood boxing ring of a set, built around music cues like this. Composer Federico Mompau. I found a few different versions of his composition, Cantar del Alma, and made them the musical theme for Doubt. del alma from a poem by saint john of the cross the fountain here to all creatures is crying hark that they should drink their fill though in the dark for it is night and i have to play you this from the end of act one eric sati Nociennes, number three. L'Ent. That's G N O S S I E N N E S, number three. L E N T. I know you're going to want to look it up, and my French pronunciation is not always that good. Eric Satie. I'm going to read you my cocky director's notes for that show i'm a little embarrassed about them but i was when i wrote them and i printed them anyway so here's what i wrote in the program why doubt it's been done a handsome production right around the corner by our friends at the arts club then the playwright himself directed a fine screen version with none other than meryl streep philip seymour hoffman Amy Adams, and the lesser-known, then, but stunning and Oscar-nominated, Viola Davis, making up the all-star dream cast of all time. So what's this? Some new recycling program at Pacific Theater? Nah, just P.T. cockiness. The fact is, when I read this script, long before I ever had a chance to see it, I knew it was pure Absolute, essential Pacific theater material. This is our play. John Patrick Shanley wrote it for us. He didn't know that at the time, but he did. I also knew it was one of the great scripts I had ever read. The subtleties, the complete mastery of the ebb and flow of our sympathies and understanding, revelations about character and event, perception and misperception, absolute mastery absolute control in service of an important, powerful, utterly human story that just had to be told on our stage by our artists. We are all about these themes. We know these characters. We live in their world. People of faith wrestling with uncertainties, living for God with confused intentions and twisted perceptions and sometimes disastrous consequences. I don't begrudge the Stanley or Mr. Shanley, their shot at the material, or Broadway, for that matter. I don't even resent the Pulitzer voters for getting there first. This play deserves as big an audience as possible. But I'll also say, taking my tongue out of my cheeky cheek for just a sentence or two, that doubt also deserves as small an audience as possible. There's an intimacy about this piece, a close-up human focus, an acute attention to detail and the nuance of human interaction, a fundamentally personal scale that belongs in a little room like our in-your-lap, no-barriers, 120-seat theater. Which, when you come to think of it's really more like a pair of overlapping 60-seat theaters. Anyhow, we've been willing to share all these many years, but it's also kind of nice to know that, at last, doubt has come home where it belongs, to the living room of the Pacific Theater stage. Why didn't Mr. Shanley just call us in the first place? That's how I wanted to start our production of The Rainmaker. Early morning light just beginning to bloom on the east wall. Silhouettes of prairie grass. The outline of a doorframe. Lizzie enters. Surveys the room. Goes to an old Victrola record player. Carefully takes out a 7-8 record. Turns the crank. Sets the needle on the disc watches the sunrise on the Curry Ranch. The sound deepens and broadens. fills the theater. H.C. Curry, Lizzie's father, enters at the other side of the stage, watches his daughter for a while, then speaks. When drought hits the lush grasslands of the richly fertile West, they are green no more. and The dying is a palpable thing. What happens to verdure and vegetation, to cattle and livestock, can be read in the coldly statistical little bulletins freely distributed by the Department of Agriculture. What happens to the people of the West? beyond the calculable and terrible phenomena of sudden poverty and loss of substance is an incalculable and febrile kind of desperation. Rain will never come again. The earth will be sear forever. And in all of heaven, there's no promise of remedy. Yet men of wisdom know to be patient with heaven. They know that the Earth will not thirst forever. They know that one day they will again awaken to a green morning. Young people like Lizzie cannot know this as certainly. Bright as she is, she cannot know. She can only count the shooting stars and hope. Sometimes the playwright's best words are in the stage directions. And so I stole that part of N. Richard Nash's Notes to the Producers and gave it to H.C. Curry as a prologue to bring us into the world of Lizzie and her brothers in a time of drought. The Victrola idea didn't work out, but we used the music, "Corral Nocturne, from Aaron Copland's Rodeo which my high school drama teacher had used in our production in grade 12, and the monologue I lifted from N. Richard Nash's prologue. The earth will not thirst forever. One day, they will again awaken to a green morning. Not bad words for a drought that's gone on much too long, or a pandemic for that matter and the theatrical drought it brought. But I'm working my lines, and Monday morning we start rehearsals for a real-life play, How the World Began. First time for me since 2019. The earth will not thirst forever. One day we will awaken again to a green morning. Just keeping that ghost light burning. Good night, everybody. See you after opening
3: night.